Welcome to episode 264 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, and I am thrilled to be joined on this episode by an all-star panel of guests to help make sense of this varied and strange and different end. All sorts of other adjectives we'll come up with later during the show, I'm sure. Sports landscape we're dealing with right now in 2020. Tennis is one of several sports that's sort of coming back in different forms. There's already some tennis back, but other sports are further ahead or in different spots in their, in their calendar. So we're going to take a, a look at the sports landscape across mostly North America here, this episode across several different sports. And to help me do that are reporters who are the actually all queens of their domain in various different sports, starting with Helene Elliott, who is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, a sports columnist for Los Angeles Times, who's been reporting across a bunch of different sports, especially the National Hockey League, which is starting up. Hello, Helene. Thanks for being here. Hi. Next, we have Ava Wallace of the Washington Post, uh, who is NBA reporter now on the Washington Wizards beat, covering them as they get ready to come back in the Orlando NBA bubble. Hello, Ava. Disney bubble, no free ads. <laughs> no free ads. <laughs> and Lindsay Gibbs, uh, repeat NCR guest of Power Plays, which is a no bullshit newsletter about sexism in sports. Lindsay, hello. Thanks for being here again. Thanks for having me back, Ben. And another first-timer on NCR, Caitlin Murray, who is a soccer journalist and author of The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Caitlin, thanks for being on here. I'm thrilled to join you. Thanks for having me. So, Caitlin, let's start with you, actually, because NWSL, which is the National Women's Soccer League, was sort of ahead of the curve timing-wise in terms of coming back, was the first North American pro league to get games back up and running. They went through a different, bit of a different strategy than the other leagues, essentially scrapping their regular season and their planned postseason, and going with a tournament that started in late June. And I'm just curious if you can catch people up on how how that's gone so far. Sort of, they were the first mover. What were the advantages of that, the risks of that? And overall, now that this, they're about two, uh, three quarters of the way done, roughly, how you, mm-hmm. think it's, uh, how you think it's all gone for women's soccer so far in their comeback? Yeah, the NWSL was the first team contact league to come back in the United States. They came back on June 27th and teams started arriving earlier that week. And it was kind of a rush process. There were some time constraints that meant they sort of had to get going quickly and get it done by the end of July. And I think that when I spoke to sources, there were some concerns about being the first league back and rushing back. And what we saw is that because of that, one team ultimately ended up having to drop out the Orlando Pride A bunch of players tested positive two days they were supposed to fly to Utah for this tournament, and they were scheduled to play a game four days after they were supposed to arrive. That is not long enough to quarantine players. Mm. That is not long enough to get through the incubation period. So Orlando just had to drop out. There was no way around it. Teams were playing games every four days. It just wasn't going to work. At the same time, I think that because the NWSL came back so quickly – The rate of infection at that time compared to right now looks pretty different. Uh, The situation has definitely gotten much worse in the U.S. as a lot of these leagues are trying to come back. So I think it was very rushed and there were probably trade-offs there. Um, But ultimately, I think the NWSL has been pretty lucky since Orlando dropped out. No one has tested positive since they got to Utah. And I don't 
really think that's down to airtight protocols because again, teams didn't have time to quarantine. They didn't build in an incubation period. They just got a little bit lucky. No one tested positive. And, you know, it's a, it's a smaller league. It's definitely, you know, the NBA, their bubble is going to have hundreds of people. The NWSL is not that size, but it has worked out. So there was a little luck on their side. I think the timing actually ended up working out for them. But after Orlando dropped out, it's been pretty smooth sailing. No one has gotten COVID. Have you been able to appreciate the league as a normal league without just looking at it only through a, a preoccupying COVID lens? Or are players, do they seem engaged as they normally would be? Do fans seem engaged in sort of wins and losses and everything like that like it normally would be? Or is it all still being played kind of under this, uh, under this considerable cloud from your perception? Yeah, I, yeah, I think that when Orlando dropped out, that sort of came out of nowhere. That was pretty shocking for people. And it was like, oh, this is a bad idea. No one should be doing this. But after you sort of get through that hump, you know, my biggest concern other than COVID-19 was that it was just not going to be good soccer. The soccer was going to be bad. It was my concern. And part of that was I expected a lot of national team players were going to drop out of the tournament uh, because they were, you know, there's no incentive for a national team player to do this when they have to focus on the Olympics and being healthy for some of these events that they're still hoping are going to come up. So ultimately, not that many national team players dropped out. Megan Rapino did. She's by far the biggest star in the league. Tobin Heath, Kristen Press. There were also some injuries. But overall, the national team players wanted to play in this, and most of them are there. And the soccer has actually been pretty good. I think the players were hungry to get back on the field, and we're seeing that in those games. I was really scared it was going to be a lot of 0-0 draws, but these have been entertaining games. People are scoring goals. It's actually pretty fun. And, you know, when you compare that to Major League Soccer, which yeah. has come back, the men's league, the players look drained. I mean, they're playing it in Florida in July. Probably not the best idea. But I think that the women's players in the NWSL, they just really wanted to get out there. And it's actually been pretty fun. Yeah. We'll get a bit into comparing men's and women's sports and athletes a bit later in the show because I do think there's some interesting parallels across a few different sports that are coming up back on both sides but I want to get to Helene now um Helene to ask you specifically I guess you've been writing most extensively going through your your recent bylines on NHL and it's coming back and I'm curious NHL was in a different position than women's soccer they'd already started their season they were already you know more than 80 percent through the regular season uh, as things were shaping up, I was very excited. My my favorite team, the Philadelphia Flyers, were surging. They won like 10 of their last 11. They were probably going to win their division, and they got cut off. And So they it's a different setup with them because they feel like they probably have unfinished business or something that they need to wrap up. They feel more pressure to wrap up something they started already rather than starting something from scratch. So I'm I'm curious what you think the sort of – what makes the NHL model stand out among the sports? What's been different there? They just they – they took a long time to decide their host cities, I know, and they recently – fairly recently landed on Toronto and, and Edmonton. Interesting you mentioned that, and I think that's one of the things that gives the NHL maybe the greatest chance of actually finishing this and seeing this through is because it's in Canada, yeah. um, where the COVID per capita rates are certainly much lower than in the United States and dramatically lower than many American cities. I mean, here in Southern California, we're seeing these spikes and it's just horrendous. But yeah, I mean, it, when this whole process started, everybody considered Las Vegas a favorite to be one of the hub cities. And the NHL waited and was looking at the COVID rates and information and 
um, it became clear that the spike in Nevada wasn't going to allow that to be done safely. So the NHL is decamped to Toronto and Edmonton. And again, I think they have the best chance of the major leagues to see this through with probably the least interest among mm -hmm. fans, among the so-called big four in terms of uh, TV ratings and, uh, and all the other metrics that we use. But I think that the NHL's biggest problem is going, to, is going on, and that's that each team is at its home city and its home facility for its training camp. Right. And they have to get everybody safely through training camp before they get to the hubs in Edmonton yeah. and Toronto. And that may not be easy. No, definitely. Yeah, they're, they're sort of still spread out, whereas NBA players, I believe, get to NBA next. But their NBA players are really already there in Orlando. Mm -hmm. NHL is still waiting to do this yeah. sort of airlift of everybody to get to these two Western teams to Edmonton, Eastern teams to Toronto airlift situation. Exactly, did they, did yeah. they consider moving earlier? Do you know, or, or was this always the plan? There was some consideration to having training camps uh, in, in a bubble too, but I think players were against that because that would have uh, increased the amount of time they're away from their families. And uh, some players have opted out. Uh, I think it's about yeah. seven or eight Plus, um, uh, Max Domi of the Montreal Canadiens has type 1 diabetes and celiac disease. So he's at risk, certainly uh, higher risk. If he were to get COVID-19, uh, the complications could be terrible for him. He hasn't decided yet. So uh, that's one big name that the NHL is waiting to see uh, what they do. But yeah, I, I, it, it would have probably increased their odds of getting things done if they had a, a bubble training camp, but it, it just wasn't practical. Yeah. No, it, you say seven players roughly so far have opted out. That's a relatively small number out of the 250 or 240 or so who'd be on rosters for these teams that are playing. Now, yeah, so I guess it does seem most of the players are, are buying into this idea and, and on board. Exactly what you said earlier about, you know, the NHL done when the play was suspended. And there is that sense of unfinished business, particularly among the teams that have a better chance. And also the, um, the NHL has added eight teams. Normally there would be... Yeah teams in the playoffs. Now there's 24 conveniently added teams so that Chicago, Montreal, and the New York Rangers got in. Oh, wow. What a coinky dink um, to get, you know, these huge hockey markets in right. there. Yeah. Um, and but now they have new chance. They have new life. So, uh, you know, there's store great stories for fans to follow if fans are still going to follow and sit and watch these games in, in August. I mean, they're supposed to start on August 1st. And um, you know, people say, oh, in Canada, the hockey interest is great, but, you know, the summers are short, too. So I'm thinking those folks are going to want to be outdoors. I don't know how many of them are going to be watching hockey, even though it is playoffs. Yeah, that's another question I think we'll get to a bit later when sort of general discussion topic is just like the saturation of sports are going to be happening, too. It's all these sports. I was thinking earlier today, like, oh, wow, like I, U.S. Open could be on. But what if there's like NHL playoffs interacting with U.S. Open for the first time ever? These are like new conflicts and sports have never lined up previously these kind of events. Uh, Ava, to get to you, Helene was talking about advantages of being in Canada for the NHL, which is sort of out of the fray of the main storm. And NBA is in a bubble, but in the opposite situation where they're sort of at the eye of the hurricane, to use a bad Florida analogy, with everything going on in Orlando and this case is spiking there. How much concern is there that what's going on in Florida will pierce the bubble, that, will, that it's not going to be impregnable? With the rapid rise of cases in Florida right now? Yeah, I think, I mean, we've been asking everyone from GMs to coaches to players exactly that. And everyone kind of says, I trust the NBA on this one. You know, they've done all the extensive medical research and everything like that. 
um, to make sure that the bubble kind of stays is what you hear a lot of players saying. There is a lot of trust in the league and trust in, in Commissioner Adam Silver. You know, their, their um, test protocol is pretty rigorous. Players are tested. Uh, they were tested twice within 36 hours upon arrival. Weren't allowed to leave their rooms in that time until they had two positive tests. Um, are tested every other day through the end of the season after that with turnaround times um, that are supposed to be within three, day, three days, but most people are actually getting their, their test results back between seven and 15 hours. So that's pretty good. Um, and the league actually released on Monday. So uh, since folks got down to Orlando, only two people tested positive and, and they never passed their quarantine phase. So they were in contact with anybody else. So uh, numbers look pretty good. If you ask people around the league and people who are inside of the, the bubble at Disney World there, outside, of course, it's, it's pretty chaotic. I mean, um, Florida, again, today, they, they recorded, I believe, a new record of, of deaths and a new record for hospitalizations, though they're, they had over 15,000 cases reported today, but I don't think it was, um, I don't think that was their single day record. But I mean, it's, it's, it's really not good in the bubble. And um, it's not just players and coaches and team staff members getting, of course, getting tested down there. It's, it's also Disney workers and the people who are uh, preparing meals for people and washing the laundry. All of those people are getting tested as well. But at the same time, not everyone is like the players living in hotel rooms. You know, there are people there going back to their families in Orlando and yeah. coming in and out. And, you know, so even as secure as it has been so far, um, I think there's definitely a question now, unlike with Major League Baseball, which has already had testing problems. I'm like, you know, it's a little bit smaller than, a little bit smaller than hockey, although not much. I think Helene would have to correct me if that's wrong, but it, it, it seems pretty controlled. So the NBA does have that on its side. They didn't bring all 30 teams back for the playoffs. They brought just 22, pretty standard right now. And everyone, everyone down there feels pretty good. We'll see if it holds. And what is this sort of just like general enjoyment or like quality of life or anxiety level there? I mean, it was, I think there were a couple of tweets that went viral early on about players, you know, tweeting photo of their meal they got, like sort of dejectedly looking at like, oh, here's my sort of airplane-ish <laughs> looking food that I got. Aren't I, what was me that I'm gonna have to eat this stuff? And just like the idea of like keeping these millionaire superstar athletes trapped in their hotels for potentially months on end. Like what is, yeah. how do people think morale is going to be with this, with this group? I, everybody, all the players we're talking to are saying mainly, I just wanted to play basketball. I'm just really happy to be on the court again. I'm happy to be with my teammates again. Um, the only kind of things they can do from what we understand are things like fishing and trail walking, like very bad Florida activities. So just wonderful in, in smothering humidity. Nothing I want to do more than spend a morning on the water. Um, Morale seems good for now. Again, teams just got there last week, and there's a really excellent Twitter profile that was set up called NBA Bubble Life. If, if people aren't following it, I highly recommend. Lots of funny videos of people making the most of what essentially is big NBA summer camp right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, check in back check back in, in in September when when people are like, I haven't had no. There are I was going to say people haven't had a haircut, but there are uh, beauticians in the bubble. There are bubble barbers and bubble manicurists. So it's, it's, not like, um, it's not like folks are slumming it. Uh, I really wanna know who's cooking for LeBron and what room he's staying in because I know it's not like the rest of the league. That's what I'm really- <laughs> It would be good to know, yeah. Bubble barber sounds like a fun, fun job. So maybe it's possible- resume, Yeah, I like that, but I was yeah. a bubble- uh. Guys, I'm on, you know that's like the first story I wanted to write, come on. <laughs> 
it, it does seem like, yeah, there could be a little bit of like a honeymoon phase going on. You mentioned summer camp, like people are still in it. They're still in sort of to use, they're sort of like the Tiger King phase of quarantine as we were to use our own references. Oh, and, uh, okay. Yeah. So like very early days, we'll see how it yeah. hopefully, hopefully comes well for them. Uh, Lindsay, yeah. to get to you to round out this group, the, the WNBA is also coming back also in Florida, correct? And mm-hmm. they had in terms of players opting in or out, they've had sort of the, I think probably the most high profile sort of standoff between player and league of any of the sports so far with what's happening with Elena Deladon, who's the star player for the Washington Mystics, the reigning NBA, WNBA champions. Can you explain a bit of what happened there and and why that that caught so many people by surprise and what it sort of says about athlete agency and things like that in this, in this moment? Yeah. So the WNBA is what it's trying to do is do a full season. So the WNBA season is of course much shorter than the NBA season um, anyways, um, it's about 36 regular season games. They're doing 22 regular season games and then a full playoffs. Um, so the playoff format is supposed to be the same. All of the IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. So it's a little bit different in that, um, you know, for the NBA, you know, for the MLS and, and NWSL, it's like one tournament, you know, right now that you're opting in or out of. And for the NBA and the NHL, you know, you're talking playoffs, whereas this is, you know, the whole This is the season itself. So WNBA players fought to get their whole salaries guaranteed for this season. So even though it's just a 22 game season, um, if you, if you're playing, you get your full salary, which is a big deal and not what the league first offered in negotiations. um, It should be said. Uh, So that's a big deal. But the trade-off there is in in NWSL. I know if you, if you opted out of the um, tournament of the challenge cup, you still got paid, right? You, there wasn't a financial penalty in the NWS or in the WNBA. That's not the case. So if you, the only way to not play and to still get a salary is if either you're injured. So that's, you know, kind of the normal thing where if you're on a roster, you're a big part of the roster, you're injured you know, they're going to keep you on the roster and, um, you know, you're going to do your rehab. And the other way was if you got a high risk exemption. So there was the WNBA and WNBA Players Association decided on this medical panel and um, the medical panel looked over, you know, the the cases of a few people who wanted um, exemptions, which means they would be considered high risk for COVID uh, or COVID complications. Um, so far, we, the only one we know that's been granted is for Jessica Breland, who is a player who uh, is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that's the mm-hmm. type of thing we're talking about. There are a few other pending. Um, so Elena Deladon is the two-time MVP. She was the MVP last year, and she has Lyme disease. And I think everyone, you know, she's always been pretty open. Of course, I cover her pretty one-on-one, so I know how open she's been. And she'll get a cold and have to miss you know, a couple weeks of games, you know, just for like a normal sickness. So I think every single person in the league assumed that Elena Deladon would be in this high risk category, including Elena Deladon. And this week she found out that her, or I don't know exactly when, but she announced this week that she found out her request was denied. And so that has been a really big story. It's been really tough because, you know, she's the biggest name and she feels like these doctors are telling her that, Lyme disease and that what she's feeling and what she's going through with her body like isn't real and you know the the science behind Lyme disease is is still fairly new and of course the science behind coronavirus is even newer and there's a lot of people feel that like in this case you give everyone the benefit of the doubt right like if there's question marks around the science 
Um, but ultimately, the WNBA and the WNBA Players Association decide on this panel. There's no appeals allowed. And that's just kind of where we are. Now, the Mystics have come forward and said that they plan to keep Elena on, her, on the roster. She, was, she had back problems anyway, so she was still recovering from a back surgery. So she's going to stay on the roster, keep rehabbing, and we'll get paid for this season anyways. That's what the Mystics have said. Um, but she's still, she's still not thrilled. Like she still feels like there's going to be pressure on her to go into the training facilities in DC, which she doesn't feel completely safe doing. Um, she's still, she, I think she's just really rattled by this decision. She didn't see it coming. She's very rattled by it. And there's a lot to figure out logistically. I have no doubt. I feel like the Washington Mystics are going to, you know, kind of be very accommodating to her. She has a, she's just signed a four-year contract. She's the best player in the league. Yeah. Um, you kind of, you know, they've said like, we're going to make this work. Um, but ultimately, I think a lot of the players feel like this is a sign of, um, you know, the league not having their back, that this just doesn't feel um, above board. And a lot, I mean, look, first of all, this decision shouldn't have taken this long to come back to. Nobody really understands the mechanics behind getting this panel ready and why it took so long to get the answers. So there's just a lot of secrecy and it's, it's not been a good start. For sure. Yeah, it just seems like a lot of ill will to create with a star player where you pay, sort of picking this fight early on. Just unnecessary. I mean, I know, like, you know, there's the reason of it, it's one of those things where, like, if you back up on the procedure to prevent you from doing the right thing, like, you kind of are, you know. So the league just keeps saying, well, we have this procedure to make it fair, to make everything fair. And I do totally get that and understand, like, they're in a tough place and a lot of players maybe would feel like she was getting unfair treatment. But at the same time, I think, I mean, everyone I've talked to in the league is just kind of confused as to why she didn't. Like I said, nobody thought she was going to play. Like nobody thought this was going to be a question. So it's, it's been a really rough start to, um, you know, what has otherwise been, um, you know, things inside the bubble so far are, you know, getting into a nice rhythm Players are getting excited to play. They're glad to be back with their teams. They're, you know, they're finding their rhythm a little bit. Um, but of course, there's been all this outside noise that's made it, you know, really dampened the, this um, start of the season. One last question for you. And then, Caitlin, if you want to weigh in on this after Lindsay on just on the soccer specifically, I'm curious, Lindsay, how you think it's been for female athletes in general? Uh, obviously, it's a very broad brush to paint with. But during, during this pandemic, as things are coming back, have women, have female athletes faced different challenges than the male athletes you think in this time or is everyone in more or less the same sorts of boats here I think first of all I want to say like I think with coronavirus um I think you know uh, obviously the people on the front lines the healthcare workers the people who've lost their jobs entirely are um at the most you know risk and suffering yeah. the most but I don't think this has been an easy time for anyone no matter how much money you have or you know how many I think this is been a rough time for everyone and um, you know that includes the millionaire you know NBA players but yeah I think when you 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 make less money anyways the thought of you know losing this entire paycheck you know if you don't play is a bigger deal I think that the pressure that these women feel to keep the momentum going for their leagues you know uh, to keep this momentum in women's sports going I think that's a lot of pressure um, they're not giving, given as many amenities, you know, I don't think the WNBA players can even go fishing or go, you know what I mean? Like go golfing or go do whatever these NBA players are doing. You know, that doesn't exist, uh, within their bubble. You know, they're living in 
you know, most are pretty okay with their conditions, but it's, you know, it's not nearly as luxurious as what the NBA players are um, getting. And even that is way less luxurious than what NBA players are used to. So ultimately, I think it, it, it's been tough. I think it's tough mentally. I know then WSL and Caitlin can talk about this. Like a lot of players have been hit, hitting a mental wall lately. Really the culmination of living in a hotel room, of playing in this altitude, of having the spotlight on you. And, you know, these teams are having, they're pushing social justice issues too. So these individual teams, the WNBA and NWSL are, you know, having these really deep, really tough internal conversations along with the rest of the world. And it's, it's a big weight. And I think one thing I'm really curious about with the WNBA season is what it's going to be like for the teams that keep losing. You know what I mean? Because mm. like it's a full 22 game season, no matter what. So I know for the NBA, it's what, like eight games of the regular season. You know what I mean? It's like a small portion of the regular season that needs to get played out before like the games become really meaningful. So if you're, if your team's really bad, you'll be out pretty quickly. Um, and you know, for the NWSL, it's this round-robin tournament, so it's kind of getting in. But I think for the WNBA, I think it's going to be a really tough summer, even tougher than usual for the teams that find themselves out of the hunt really quickly, the teams that are losing, the teams that are having trouble. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about that, as well as just, you know, keeping the coronavirus. I know you didn't ask about this, but just, you know, the testing and keeping the coronavirus out of the bubble, which, yeah. you know, there's players in the bubble quarantined with the virus. So um, we'll have to see. Are there still players who are tested positive still in, within the bubble? In yeah, they're quarantined. Yeah, they're quarantined, um, but within the bubble. Yeah, so they didn't they didn't make it out of their initial quarantine, but they did test positive. You know, there, and yeah. so and there's a, still a few players who've tested positive in their home markets who are still in their home markets. Of course, you know it's it's also this is another difficulty whereas the league doesn't want to come out and out players who have coronavirus you know without their permission so it becomes this weird thing of like everyone knows this player isn't <laughs> you know at IMG there's only 12 players per roster um so it's pretty easy to keep track and yet you you know nobody really wants to say the names or kind of be um transparent about it and that's yeah. another challenge too but yeah I think for the most part players I talk to feel safe feel good are excited to be there right now. Like Ava said, like are in that little bit of a, you know, honeymoon, you know, first day of camp phase and the bad headlines about the, you know, the, the location and the amenities has kind of gone away. IMG and WNBA did a really good job taking care of those. Um, but ultimately the stuff with Kelly Leffler, the, um, the owner of the Atlanta dream who uh, is anti black lives matter. And mm -hmm. then this Elena Deladon stuff has been, I think it's, it's really made this uh, restart uh, much, much worse than it should have been. Yeah. Caitlin, just throw it back to you for a second before we get to a tilt, try to put more of a foot in the tennis world as we straddle the rest of the sports conversation, just on the, on the male athletes versus female athletes front with the both soccer leagues being back up now. Are you seeing major differences that you think can be chalked up to just the sort of gender schism in the sport? Obviously, there's been a lot of stories and news in about women's soccer players fighting for equality. I'm just curious how you see that shaking out in, in this moment in their, in their respective Corona versions right now. Yeah, I, I think the approach for Major League Soccer was very different than the National Women's Soccer League. MLS and the Players Association they had a pretty big standoff before this tournament even came together. They got into a little bit of a tiff. MLS threatened to lock out the players. And 
It was sort of an awkward situation because MLS and the MLSPA had come together to put together a new CBA before the 2020 season, but it hadn't actually been finalized by the time all of this happened. So it was sort of these awkward waters where they were sort of fighting, but MLS had the upper hand. So it really upset a lot of MLS players and alienated them from the very beginning. MLS wanted to be the first league back. They had plans, I think, for June, mid-June, they wanted to get going, and that obviously didn't happen because of these negotiations. Mm-hmm. Then you look at the NWSL, it's totally different. It was a collaborative process from the beginning. The players negotiated that they would be paid even if they opted out. So there wasn't pressure on players who were just uncomfortable with this. And most of the NWSL players wanted to do this. They saw an opportunity for a spotlight. This tournament was going to be the first time the NWSL was going to have games on CBS, on network TV. They really wanted to show off the league, whereas I think MLS players, like, these guys make a ton of money. They're, in some cases, global superstars. This is a job for them. They are not worried about MLS getting a spotlight and being able to show off the league. NWSL players, it's very different. They're paid a lot less, very different circumstances. And I think we saw that just from the very beginning and the way these tournaments were negotiated, the male athletes don't care as much as the female athletes do. Hmm. Yeah, we'll get to that a bit later in the tennis, just in terms of the male accountability and how the men have been the ones <laughs> screwing up in tennis consistently here. Um, Helene, actually, I want to see if I can toss one more to you, because one major U.S. sport we haven't touched on is baseball, which I know has the biggest, has had the biggest uh, labor sort of stand-up of all the major sports. Had a lot of talk about whether their season would even happen. They finally got a 60-game season, which is, uh, you know, about a third of their normal length, so much far, far reduced season there. And I'm, I'm just curious, yeah, how you think these, and we'll get to this after this, we can talk about tennis players being individual sport, how that's different, but what was the baseball sort of showdown like? Cause it really was going on for a long time. And baseball, obviously. Yeah, there was some nasty labor stuff going back and forth and it took them a long time to agree. And basically at one point the players said, okay, just tell us where to, where to go and when to be there and we'll show up. Um, There was a lot of nasty stuff going on there. You know, right now, it's all still uh, training. It's all still kind of like spring training, like summer camp almost. A lot of distancing. I've been seeing that teams are extending their dugouts because there's not going to be fans. So they can Mm -hmm. take out, you know, the normal, the box seats that normally would be sold at a pretty high price. Uh, They're extending the dugouts. Uh, along those lines so that uh, players can be socially responsibly distanced in the dugouts. But, you know, I've seen, they've televised some Dodgers and Angels games here, and I've seen, you know, pitching coach with his arm draped around a pitcher. So, you know, it's kind of hit or miss as to how closely they're going to adhere to all of this. You know, there's uh, not going to be very many media allowed. Baseball writer cards, which normally get you into any game that you need to cover, aren't going to be valid. You have to apply 24 hours in advance to cover a game. And, you know, they'll let the beat writers in, but probably not columnists. You know, we're still waiting to see how that's all going to shake out. It all just seems to me, can you tell a baseball player not to spit? That's what they're trying to do. Watch baseball in your life. You know, half the time the cameras are focused on them. They're spitting. um, And they're not supposed to be doing that now. So, uh, you know, it, it just all seems so 
you know, just so fragile to me that, um, you know, they're, they're going to pump in crowd noise and they're going to have the PA announcer and they're going to have music. And, and it, but to me, without the fans, and, and I wrote this about the U.S. Open without uh, tennis, without fans, it's not the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you get, they're going to get their TV revenue. And, and that's what this is all about for every league. It's TV money. It's getting, recouping as much TV revenue as they can. And I can understand it to a degree, but I can also see this all blowing up very, very easily and very quickly. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It is fragile. And I think also in terms of what it's going to look and feel like, I think the ceiling is pretty low in a lot of ways. Like best case scenario, yeah, no one gets sick and there's not a a super spreader event, any of these leagues, but you know, it still involves having a really weird looking sport you're watching with no fans, with with very weird energy with players not really in their normal environments and not normally in their best physical mental shapes. So I feel like the, the reward with the risk is, is a much lower reward than it normally is for having a successful sports league in a lot of ways. You know, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Ava. That, Helene, um, we just, I, I guess the Nats, the Washington Nationals, the team here in DC can't play at Nats Park um, with opening week, opening day a week away um, because DC, as you guys do in California, you have a 14 day quarantine. So if you contract virus, you have to quarantine for 14 days and the city is not bending that for the Nats. So they're looking at their AAA out in West Virginia or their spring training uh, park in Florida, which I don't think they should do. (laughs) Not the best option. The the Dodgers are also dealing with something like that. Yeah, because city, uh, LA County, the the numbers have been spiking terribly here. Yeah, so they're still planning on to. I didn't clarify that with baseball. Baseball is still planning on having every team essentially host home games yeah, and still having even... travel. They're not doing. They're not doing <laughs> a bubble per se, which is actually a lot like tennis. To get to tennis, tennis is really, with the exception of the Cincinnati tournament moving to New York and being held at the U.S. Open facility the week before the U.S. Open. There's no other geographic consolidation happening in tennis. I mean, tennis is starting off with weeks in Palermo, Italy, and then in Lexington, Kentucky, and Washington D.C and then going to New York for those three weeks there, and then heading immediately over to Madrid, and then Rome, and then Paris, and other things along the way as well. And that's just sort of the top-level tournaments, not to mention whatever challengers might pop up there. So I, I want to open this up broadly, because all of you know tennis, at least some of us, I know a bunch of you have covered it more closely. Within the other context of everything we just talked about, what do you see as the, how do you think tennis is set up to, to fare here? Whatever, whatever your sort of first general impression from whoever has one. Lindsay, go ahead. What, what do you think tennis is looking at here? Terribly. <laughs> I think it's terrible. <laughs> you know, I think so much of this is about a controlled environment. It's about um, trust and accountability, which I think in team sports, you know, I do think that a lot of teams learn from what happened to the Orlando Pride or anyone who was paying attention, where it was kind of um, seen that a few players you know, reported that a few players went out on their own and ended up, you know, getting these, you know, getting coronavirus and spreading to their team. I think that kind of woke up a lot of people. And, you know, when you're living in the same place as your team, you're practicing daily, you know, you're accountable to each other and you're in locations. Like there's nothing around in Bradenton, Florida, right? Like there's nowhere to go. Like (laughs) there's just like nothing to do. Whereas in these cities, especially New York city, like where it's so ego driven. I mean, these players are, we know their teams are full of enablers, you know, who are just like their jobs are to like make the player feel comfortable and love, not to like keep them locked in their room. Right. Cause the player is paying them. 
I just think it's terrible. And of course, like, how are you keeping everyone quarantined? How are you, you know, everyone's coming in from so many different uh, directions. It just, um, so many different flights, like every, I mean, people, it's not like people can be chartering in, it's not like there's one team that can like charter flights. Like, I don't, I don't understand how it's happening. I realize the sport itself, like hitting a ball back and forth is better, but like that, to me, isn't even like the point. <laughs> yeah, on court, <laughs> like, social distancing is is a thing. And to mention sure. what Helene was saying about baseball and the yeah. dugouts, people around their arms. I have seen in these world team tennis matches, which are happening now, just even the brief right. clips on Twitter, there are teammates who are sort of sitting together on the sidelines, you know, joking and laughing. And even if they're just sort of bumping elbows instead of high fiving, they're still you know one foot away from each other, their faces at all times. And it's it's not really realistic for them to want, you know, in a communal environment to expect people to at all times keep their distance and keep their radiuses really intact for, for distancing. I just think it's completely unrealistic. Lince, Lince to get to your to your point, because I, I did a podcast last week or whenever I lasted a show with, with Rima Walel talking a bit about tennis players being selfish and not trustworthy on this. And, but to hear you hit it, just as hard to get outside confirmation tennis players are a uniquely problematic group you think here in terms of how uh how ego driven or how selfish or self-centered they might be i don't know i just think it's a difference for the team difference you know what i mean like i think yeah. probably all these athletes are but i just think it's so different when you're not accountable to a team i'm not saying they're not selfish ego driven athletes in all sports of course there are i think in order to be that elite of an athlete uh men's or women's side you've got to be selfish and ego driven a lot of it right but i really do think it's different when you can be accountable to your team versus the situation that these players are in i i gotta say so the the nba sent out a memo this morning to um, players coaches for (laughs) of campus rules including wearing a mask and dressing appropriately when receiving room service so <laughs> you know, I want to know what prompted that I mean I kind of do want to know but I really don't want to know what prompted that at least that means they're in their rooms though right? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't please dress appropriately when you're out fishing yeah right yeah, yeah. it's true yeah they're saying how Caitlin I guess to bring you back in for a sec here we mentioned early on the Orlando Pride example of being there was a situation where uh, some, I think the story as it sort of was told, and you can correct me if I get any of this wrong, was that the young, so a few younger players in Orlando Pride were going out to bars that were having to be open in Florida during uh, the grand Ron DeSantis opening of everything in Florida. And <laughs> they, um, they got the virus and spread it, and I guess spread it to maybe other teammates as well. And, mm-hmm. and were really ostracized for that. And I'm just curious how you sort of saw um, accountability play out there and how, what that sort of says about how, the women's players were taking it probably more serious, at least, especially after that moment, uh, very seriously, the sort of group accountability and the group responsibility and the shared nature of that. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head that Florida and Ron DeSantis are handling this virus very different than other locations. So here where I am in Portland, Oregon, the Portland Thorns didn't have the option to go clubbing. Whereas in Orlando, those players had the option. And, you know, I've spoken to a few sources about this. Some of the younger players on the roster took that opportunity and went out. And I think the backlash has been massive. I mean, from what I've heard, a lot of the older players are really upset. I mean, this is a lost opportunity at a time where, you know, the national team coach is at all these games, he's in Orlando, and he's scouting players and other people from U.S. soccer are there. This is a big loss opportunity for some of these players. The 
backlash from fans was huge. They were doing a lot of uh, online CSI work, finding <laughs> people's Venmo transactions to figure out who's going out to bars together, which is just mind blowing that they were able to do that. And they were able to figure out who some of these players were. So there's definitely a, an accountability piece, but I also think like sports are a microcosm for what is happening in these different locations. I mean, you talked about how some of these tennis events are going to be in Europe. I mean, of the major soccer leagues that have come back, the first major soccer leagues come back was the Bundesliga in Germany. Mm -hmm. And that's not really a coincidence. You know, they have a chancellor who is a former scientist and she has been very focused on, you know, scientific things like bringing down the R naught of the virus. The R naught is for anyone who has the virus, how many people are they spreading it to? And she made it a goal in Germany. The R naught has to be below one because that means the virus is going to stop spreading. I haven't heard any of our leaders in the United States talking about the R naught. So for the Bundesliga, there, I mean, there was some concern at the beginning, like, are fans going to congregate at these games? Is this going to be a problem? And in Germany, everyone followed the rules. It's not to say the Bundesliga didn't have, you know, any positive tests at any point or anything like that, but they had really strict protocols, and that country has handled it really well. So they came back in May um, before any American leagues came back, that's for sure. They were one of the first leagues back. And so I think it is a microcosm. So just looking at soccer, it's clear to me that the better a country or a location is handling the virus, the less problems that those teams and those leagues end up having. Ava, I saw your eyes widen at the mention of tracking athletes on Venmo. Have you never gotten on an athlete Venmo thread at any point, like where you see like an athlete's history if they show up in your phone contacts or Venmo works it's it can be horrifying <laughs> my eyes never get wider than when someone brings up Angela Merkel my dream leader but um <laughs> no <laughs> no but it, it did make me it, it did make me think of um these bracelets that all of the NBA players are wearing to monitor things like this temperature and just their health stats and I'm like yeah and there's definitely a GPS tracker in there also but yeah their health stats also, the, the differences between female, like male athletes and female athletes, the women are not getting like no. tracking bracelets like that beep when you're social distancing. Well, that's another, like, that's another thing with the sports too, is that like, I think and this is something talking to other tennis writers before doing this podcast. Like if you ever are at a, in the lobby of a hotel at a tennis, of like a player hotel at a tennis tournament, the way that the, the men and women behave when off the clock is very different. You know, who's still hanging around the bar at mm. 11.30 on a Wednesday. You know, it's it's not the it's not the women. I mean, it, it's it of the players. It's not, and so just like in, in terms of all the things that have gone on with the players and the men at at Adria Tour, it's all it's all the men as well. And I think maybe the women are maybe to stereotype or paint with a broad brush. Maybe they're a little bit more rule abiding or willing to be a little more trustworthy in these in these fraught times. I wanted to ask Helene and, and Ava both because you cover as NHL and NBA relatively international sports. What what kind of issues have there been, if any, in terms of players? from overseas being able to get back uh, stateside or Canada side um, for for these leagues? Have they been able to post up largely or, or get exemptions or what has it been like, Helene? I'm gonna start with you. Well, it's interesting. The uh, Boston Bruins this morning announced that one of their uh, European players was deemed, I believe the uh, phrase was unfit to practice. Um, the NHL, which has never been forthcoming about 
uh, injuries is even less forthcoming now. I mean, they used to say, at least tell us upper body injury or lower body right, injury. Yeah. Now they're not even doing that. Now they, it's just absolute radio silence. So he came over and went through quarantine and had been practicing, but all of a sudden today he's deemed unfit to practice. So you wonder, um, you know, one of the problems with Canada and where the NHL is going to lose on media coverage is that at least right now, any media person who wants to go to Canada to cover the playoffs, the NHL return to play, has to be in quarantine for two weeks before you can go outside. And I can't justify that. If I'm a sports editor, I can't sit in a hotel room in Edmonton and do nothing for two weeks. Yeah, you can do some stuff on Zoom and you can you know, do some writing, but it's not the same. Um, so I think that the NHL is out that way. Um, that requirement apparently has been waived for players. Uh, they, players who are going into Canada don't have to do the two-week thing, but there are some NHL staff or team personnel who may have to go through that. So yeah, there's kind of a patchwork of, of problems with the players coming back from Europe and uh, how diligent they were in, in you know, staying safe at home and following all the protocols. Ava, how about you? How's, how's it been for, for NBA travel so far? It actually hasn't been too bad. Um, they, uh, the NBA kind of gamed this out so that what they did was by July 1st, every NBA player hoping to travel to the bubble had to be back in their home markets. You know, the Washington Wizards have W. Bertans, who's from Latvia, and Isak Bonga from Germany. So they were all back in D.C. by July 1st, and that's when they started their um, – I believe at that point it was every other day testing at the home facilities before the team even chart got the chartered flight down to uh, down to Orlando. So again, you know, they planned it all out, but that takes a lot of money. It takes private planes. It's it's something definitely not every sports league uh, can do for sure. I mean, I'm just talking about the the Nats again. Um, the uh, the team had I think it was eight players and and one coach who had to quarantine here in D.C. because they were coming over from the Dominican Republic and other Latin American countries and and just in the travel they they uh, tested positive so it, it definitely in basketball has been a little bit easier than sports that where the roster isn't so capped I would say you mentioned the quarantines and there's also quarantines within the U.S. even theoretically now that like the, uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York has put in a rule saying anyone traveling from a bunch of highly affected states. Uh, including Florida, which is a big tennis hotspot, obviously, for players being based there, has to quarantine for 14 days before going out in the city, which I just, it's not going to happen with the U.S. Open players are not going to get there two weeks early to sit in a hotel room and before, before the grant. It's just players are not going to obey that. So tennis especially is, I think, going to do a lot of rule bending, a lot of exemptions to make things happen to get this going. So I actually want to toss the question that Lindsay answered very emphatically earlier uh, to, to Ava and Helene. Just, Ava, I guess start with you. What do you, what do you make of, of tennis's chances here what do, what do you think tennis is, is looking at here in terms of what its challenges are let's put them that way um in, in terms of what its challenges are i mean there are myriad but whenever i i keep thinking up so we're supposed to have um then as you know the city open back here in dc is kind of the kickoff to the return of america yeah yeah in the dead of august as usual but um i i keep imagining that it's such a great smaller tournament um I just don't know who's going to play. And I have a feeling it's going to be not the best crowd. I feel like it's going to be very American heavy. Um, I feel like it's going to be a lot of people just, well, I mean, I don't know how press is going to work, but I'm, I'm imagining how we usually sit in those tournament rooms and just people answering questions in dodging, talking about science or politics or the virus or whatever. I, I don't know how 
enjoyable it's going to be, which makes me yeah. sad because I love to watch a tennis match right now, but um, I don't know, like you were talking about earlier, at, at what cost kind of, how, how good product have to be or how bad, I guess, does the product have to be for me to say, okay, well, I guess I'll watch this. Yeah. Actually, I have seen it, a provisional entry list is out for the City Open for the men. And oh, yeah. defending champion Kyrgios is not on it, notably. What? But but because he's been very anti, he's been very skeptical about this whole thing. Is you know he's been very anti comeback, really, um, and very blunt about that. And none of the big four who people thought people thought maybe if like it's about the calendar, maybe Djokovic would come possibly because it's two weeks before the U.S. Open, so it actually makes sense as a springboard event. But none of them are there. There are still like sixty something of the top hundred are entered in the City Open, so yeah. it's a it's a decent number. Sitsipas is there, but not like not a lot of like. Uh, Big stars, which also people also think that's probably what the U.S. Open field is going to look like then, because a oh, lot of people, what, yeah. like yeah, you I, might you might get roughly only that many people at the U.S. Open, um, <laughs> and they and the way they did it in tennis, they made it so if you can you have the choice to keep last year's ranking points instead of having to defend them, you can just keep your old ones. So like Nadal, who won the tournament, got two thousand ranking points, doesn't have to play. He can just be like, you know what, I'm going to hold, I'm going to stand on you know that result. He's like a blackjack term. Not going to try to repeat that or roll the dice again on that. And so that really disincentivizes play. So that really sort of, in some ways, undermines the event also. And, and yeah, with, with players having total tennis players are independent contractors. So they might have some sponsor contracts that would oblige them to play. They could probably get suspended during this pandemic. You would think that sponsors might be a little flexible. Um, but yeah, it, getting full attendance could be tougher than a lot of other sports for a lot of events. Um, it's funny because the, yeah, the one... Sorry. The one live event I've covered since March 11th was a tennis tournament. Yeah, in, with Sam Quarry. Yeah, in uh, Quarry and uh, Southern California pros uh, playing on a clay court in a guy's backyard in Rolling Hills. Um, and uh, Tracy Austin was a neighbor, so she walked over and sat and watched was playing in it, actually. Brandon Holt. But it, it was odd. It was just so you know, masks and they made it, there was a, an actual doctor, medical doctor, died, uh, taking our temperature, asking us health questions. I mean, there were like two media people there. We had to sign a waiver before I went in. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, some people at that point were paying attention to wearing masks and others were not. Um, but it was just so bizarre to anybody who's been to Southern California knows how dependent we are on the freeways. And it's the only time since March I've been on the freeway, on the 405 freeway. It's, it's just, I, I've lost uh, the knack of driving on freeways now. So I'm going to have to relearn that. But, you know, overall, I think, you know, and I wrote a column on this. I mean, you're going to have the U.S. Open with no fans. To me, that's not the U.S. Open. Yeah. And I suspect a lot of players are going to say no for safety reasons and just, I mean, it's the U.S. Open in name, but not in spirit. You, you all know it's it's the noise, it's the fans, it's the under you know fans picking an underdog and rooting for him or her. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just the the New York City atmosphere is so much a part of it. And if it's being played in in an atmosphere where it could be anywhere in the world, it's not the the travel situation is going to lead to a lot of non-Americans declining, just not yeah. playing. No, no, absolutely. I, I guess that gets me to sort of a bigger question with regard to tennis and other, if you want to weigh in on other sports as well, but a more existential question for this comeback, like is any of this a good idea? Is this, is this worth it to have this kind of risk for what, as Helena's saying, like a pretty strange reward, a pretty, what could be a pretty unsatisfying U S open. And obviously things could happen results wise. Like if Serena wins her 24th grand slam or something, obviously people get excited about that. There are like potential upsides to holding this tournament, but whoever wants to jump in on this is, is you think this is, or I guess I'll, Right, but do you think that you think this is a good is 
however you want to make the calculus, is it is it a good decision worthwhile to be holding these tournaments with the risks as they are and the rewards as they are? Um, I, you know, it's interesting. And you were bringing up the idea of male athletes versus female athletes. And I wonder for the female athletes, if there's more an imperative, more a compulsion to play because just to keep your name out there, just to keep the league's name out there, mm -hmm. just to be present and not because it's so easy to be forgotten. Yeah. And this way, if you're out there, I wonder if that you know factors into their decision to play uh, money and TV money, even if it's modest amount compared to the NBA or uh, Major League Baseball, that's still pretty important to that league. So I'm wondering if people are, are feeling that even subconsciously that, you know, if we don't play, we're going to fall off the map. Yeah, no, it's a more fragile economic system for sure, tennis in a lot of ways. And the USTA, which makes so much of its money for the year on this two weeks, really wants, I don't think the USTA will disappear if they don't hold the US Open. I think they're maybe being a little bit over dramatic, but bad and like tennis is going to wipe off the face of the earth of it if it loses six months or so of the calendar. But there is definitely concern with that. And the French Open too, which is, we haven't talked about it, but it's also a grand slam coming up very soon. They just had this enormous roof building project at the French Open. So they're like way in the red financially, currently everyone thinks, and their financial pressure for them to come back is, is bigger. Ava, just overall thought on good or bad, yay or nay on tennis coming back? What do you, what do you think? Is it, should, are they doing the right thing by trying to come back? Should they get kudos for trying, but now give up? Or should they have given up long ago? I especially in this country where we clearly do not have a handle on this virus. Um, I think it's really hard to say because things are changing. So, you know, when the NBA and, and the MLS made these plans to go down to Florida, Florida's numbers were not what they were, but obviously things change rapidly. So, no. you know, with that, with that caveat, it's, it's so hard for me to say that it's full stop a good idea. I understand the financial implications. It's just really hard knowing the populations that have been most direly affected by the pandemic, um, you know, minority communities, people who work in essential jobs, people who yeah. work in the service sector, like that. It's really, really hard for me to kind of morally come to terms with putting on a tennis tournament. Now, is that to say the French Open shouldn't happen? No, it seems like France's numbers in Europe, again, like I said, are, are is dealing with the virus much better than we are over here. Um, but that's just something I just, at the end of the day, I can't get back. You know, I'm doing a lot of reporting on how secure the bubble is. And that's kind of all we've been hearing. And it, it does seem really secure. But at the same time, 15,000 new cases a day in Florida is really something that's kind of definitely hard to reckon with, for sure. So that's something that's something that I'm struggling with. Yeah. Definitely. Um, because obviously, I, I watched just had like four hours of soccer a day on in the background with the Premier League of the Bundesliga. I'm a Dortmund fan, fan now. Thank you, everyone. Um, <laughs> So obviously I miss it and I love it too, but I maybe keep it in Germany. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a real point to be made and you sort of hinted this, but there's also one other discussion is if, if sports is a fair drain on resources, you know, if they are often do this like every other day type testing in a bubble to keep players eligible, okay. you're eating up a lot of tests, you're eating up a lot of testing bandwidth that a state well, that, like Florida yeah. needs. It's so that, it, and there are important caveats there. It does definitely strain the system at certain labs, but it is important to say that, and I don't know about the WNBA's testing, Lindsay can probably speak more to that, but the NBA did pay for all of these tests. So it's privately funded. It's not like they're taking just like the public supply that was in the system. Absolutely. You could say, you know, hospitals now that we're turning in 500 tests a day to certain labs are now turning in, I think it's something like 3,500. So yes, the system is definitely being strained, but that's just a little bit. You know they're paying for it it's not like they're uh, but, there, but there's there's ethics around that too right like yeah. you know shouldn't 
Um, ultimately, wouldn't it be great if someone was giving that money and expanding the capacity just for the regular pu public? Like, I know that's not how this works, but yeah. I think it's tough. Like, um, for me, it's tough to like ethically like justify, even though I do know that, you know, anyways, I think it just comes down to like, it's just so frustrating, like that our government has handled this so poorly and that yeah. there's no real way out and there's no real good answer here. And it just, it's just horrible. It's just like, it's just horrible. It didn't have to be no. this way. No, to get over to the Europe thought again, I was talking to another sort of panel thing with Marion Bartoli yesterday and she was talking about how the French have it so under control and they're doing so well there and everything and they're planning on having up to currently up to 10,000 fans in attendance at the French Open for sessions for a stadium that seats around a little under 20 I think or rough maybe it's expanded to 20 that's a lot of people and I don't know if any of you read for the French Open but it's a crowded urban place just grounds wise as is already and um to make that many people just again feels like and this is what they were saying it echoed to me a little bit of what the Djokovic defenders were saying around Adria tour was that Serbia and Croatia and the Balkans had a really great handle on the virus so they sort of had earned this chance to have sports and they were we didn't understand how well they were doing and everything and lo and behold now they're not doing as well anymore and they've had more the the, the liberalization or the reopening of uh restrictions or loosening of them has led to a, a spike. So it feels like there are certain places that are seeing success as a reason to stay vigilant and others are seeing success as a reason, relative statistical virus success as a reason to sort of reward yourself with sports, I guess, which just feels like, like a big, again, on risk reward. Like the, the risk is that you, you know, you kill people and the reward is that you get a tennis tournament. Like to me, that feels like it's not a, that's not a deal I would take. It's not a sort of gamble that I think as somebody who, you know, very much works in and at, at times, you know, eats, breathes, sleeps tennis, like I, I think in, it, its place in the, in the larger world here is, is, uh, it does not, the math does not make sense to me just in terms of the sort of ethical math of, of needing to have these things go on as, as they are. And the other, and the other concern, I sort of hinted this earlier, but we're talking about all these sports at once. These are not usually sports that are all sort of peaking at once. I feel there's going to be so many championships for different sports that are happening in a very short window now, there's gonna be a lot of oversaturation. Like usually like tennis has its glory moments in July, August, early September, you know, Wimbledon basically through US Open is where it's in the American consciousness for the most part. It has kind of space to itself. Like there's not much else going on the week of, you know, uh, I don't know, the Cincinnati Masters in the sports world. And like mid August is sort of dog days of the baseball season and maybe football preseason has started, but not much else is really going on now you're going to have everything competing at once and you know you're not going to get necessarily on big channels or get big ratings or get big attention as much as like the nwsl got this from being the first mover from being very ahead of the curve getting spots on cbs and other sports like some of these golf events and some nascar things are also up and running pretty well already now but yeah, i also just worry there's this, this overcrowding that's going to happen too and this is that's the best case that's like a, a rich person's problem in this scenario like if everything goes great we're gonna have too many sports and i, well, I, don't I know, mean, thing to mentioned it with the nwsl but you asked earlier how men's and women's sports are going to be adversely affected i mean Lindsay knows this but the reason the wnba schedule didn't come out for so long is because espn was literally holding those slot times and saying we don't know what else is going to be on at that point so we can't commit those time slots to the wnba yet hmm. Yeah, ultimately they did get more TV than they even usually get, which I hope is a 
good sign, but you never know. I mean, I think you're right. It is going to be tough usually. Um, but I, I don't know. It's not like the media does right by the WNBA anyways. <laughs> like when the NBA is not playing. So like, you know, what are you, what are we doing? Maybe, maybe the fact that it's concurrent will end up drawing more attention to it. I don't know. I, you're right. That's a good problem to have if there's too many. Yeah, the, if, the thing is, I think there's a lot, there's a big appetite for them, right? Like from the public, for, for all sports. So I guess so. To the extent that people are hungry and ready for sports. I mean, I got to say, I've, this is maybe me personally, my own sort of malaise during this. I've not had a huge appetite for sports yet. And granted, my favorite sports are not happening right now um, in their normal forms. But I don't, I don't know that people are, I don't know if people have found new things to do or, or if they're going to enjoy watching these sports. You know, like I got into like when Korean baseball started, I was like up late watching Korean baseball the first night and did not continue that behavior. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think different people have different sorts of mental readiness for this. And another thing I want to bring up, just is across, you can answer this for your own sports beats and then also for tennis. It's just, and I mentioned this a little bit with, with Serena, Potentially, I, well, I didn't mention it, but I was going to say, if Serena wins, let's say, her 24th U.S. Open here, a lot of people are going to say, put an asterisk on it and say, well, she won against a weak field or whatever, which I think is the perfect way to tie Margaret Court, who won so many Grand Slams against, like, a pretty domestic Australian field in sort of a, almost a f- ironically fitting way to, to equal a, the Margaret Court record. But how much, how much asterisking is going to happen with these results, fairly or unfairly, um, to the extent that matters in terms of the reward as well? Is, 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 is whoever wins the... NBA title, let's say this year, Ava, going to be seen as a, as a normal NBA champion or it'll be like that one sort of funky NBA championship? Or even, is it even tougher? Is it like even like a, a more somehow impressive feat? Yeah, so if you ask the players, that's what they're saying. They're like, asterisk, no, it's harder than ever. But I mean, everyone's going to, you won the pandemic tournament. I don't know what people are going to call it. But of course, everyone's going to say with the asterisk, I think, in the NBA. And then we'll have that to debate about for two months. So who needs sports after that anyways? But I mean, I, I think with Serena, where it's different from the NBA, that's a one-off thing. Serena had 23 others. Like, yeah, if she wins 24 here, it seems like she earned it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no playing against. But in, in other leagues, I think, I think there definitely will be some sort of asterisk, although I don't know how much stock fans yeah. are going to Maybe maybe Serena's the wrong example. Maybe someone if someone like really more and obviously there've been relatively random champions in, in women's tennis, or at least like a depth of them, a plausible champion. So if someone like to pick a name, I don't know, like if someone like a oh, Alison gonna- Alison von Oyflank wins the US Open. Like what are we gonna say about that? I mean it's gonna be worse if Serena plays and doesn't win against whatever this field is. It's gonna yeah. be so that way. Yeah. Helene, Helene, what do you think about this this idea of whether these well, results will be taken seriously? Yeah. It's interesting because I mean the NHL changed the playoff format. Uh, normally, there are 16 teams in the playoffs. This now it's 24. Mm-hmm. So what happens if one of the eight teams that they let in uh, ends up winning the Stanley Cup? Um, they've already kind of suffered an embarrassment because one of the eight teams that's going to lose in the first round uh, won the number one pick in the draft lottery. Uh, mm. So. You know, you know, you're the NHL, you stage this whole TV show, you know, five, four, three, two, one, and the number one pick goes to a team to be determined. I mean, it's a horrible PR display. Um, You know, what happens if one of the eight teams that got in, just because this is a strange year, ends up winning the Stanley Cup? Yeah, like Montreal is a losing record, I think, and they're in the playoffs. And yeah, um, yeah the new yeah. Blackhawks, yeah. Rangers. I mean, so many teams getting a second chance that they weren't going to, that maybe they don't deserve. Um, what happens if one of them wins the cup? You know, then again, uh, as Ava said, you can make the argument that maybe it's tougher. 
um, you know, you're you're playing under this uh, atmosphere of uh, I don't want enough of, of caution of you know you're getting tested all the time you're being separated from your, your family from most of the time although the NHL has a provision for families to come in for the uh, Stanley Cup final you know just in the whole world around you everything is so different so there are mental and emotional stresses that wouldn't be there in a normal season in a normal Stanley Cup playoffs Make that argument there and you know the whole asterisk thing always bothers me it's kind of like who puts an asterisk where you know the person right. who engraves the names of the players and coaches on the stanley cup is not going to also engrave an asterisk yeah it's Absolutely. the stanley cup it was a weird season but there have also been two lockout seasons where they awarded the stanley cup the, when the regular season was 48 games and nobody put an asterisk anywhere so you know what that whole asterisk debate i just tends to just, I just sit no. that one out. I guess, Caitlin, to bring you back in here, I'm, I'm curious what people in w, NWSL make of the stakes of this season, because they're playing like an entirely different thing. It, it's it's called the um, the Challenge Cup. Is challenge right? Cup. Yeah, Challenge Cup. Which challenge is, just even getting it off the ground. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious, like what player, one of the things that's been tough for me in watching tennis exhibition events or even imagining tennis is sort of figuring out what the stakes are. Right? I think that's such yeah. an important thing for, for sports to know what the stakes are. And, and as Helene says, if you have the Stanley Cup at the end of the road, that means the Stanley Cup champion. That's like, you get that same trophy. It's still there. That's sort of a uniformity. But with NWSL, they've invented this new competition, this new prize. I'm yeah. curious what, if, if players are taking it as seriously as a regular season they normally would, or if it's some sort of goofy sideshow to them or somewhere in between or close yeah, to Yeah, I, I think it's interesting for the NWSL and MLS, it's sort of very different than a regular season because, you know, knockout formats are very fluky. Um, it's not like playoffs in other sports where you have multiple games and you're trying to determine winners. I mean, anytime there's a single game elimination, anything can happen. So it becomes sort of weird. Um, and for the NWSL, I really think it was just about getting back. For MLS, they actually have a million dollars in prize money on the line. The winner of this fake tournament is going to get a CONCACAF a Champions League spot next year. Mm. And what I find really interesting is that the NWSL, like, this is it. This is their season, pretty much. Whereas MLS is pretending that they are still having a regular season. Like, when they talk about the records of these teams, they are including the two games that these teams played in March and they're pretending that after this, they're going to go back and play a regular season, which I think is just totally delusional because for MLS, two teams have had to drop out because so many players got COVID-19 FC Dallas and Nashville SC are not at this tournament. So how do you go back and have a regular season after that? So for MLS, 100%, this is going to be an asterisk season as much as possible i mean there's no way this is a regular season for the nwsl also orlando pride aren't there but they were kind of the worst team in the league anyway so i don't know that anyone was expecting them to win um but yeah i mean i think that just inherently like soccer is the sport where it's a marathon and not a sprint and just having single elimination games totally changes the dynamic of everything pretty much yeah. No, that's, that's something I've, I've talked about with how crowded the schedule is. And obviously I've been a broken record on this topic before people who have heard me whine about it, but best of five in men's tennis is still going to be the thing they're, they're playing the men's U S open and the men's French open this year. 
which I really worry about with players having not being in regular in their peak conditioning, not being mentally in a good place, having to play a Masters event the week before this tournament uh, with no rest week like they usually have. The men usually almost all skip the week before a Grand Slam in their calendars, and then in the French Open playing back to back Madrid and Rome the two weeks before the French Open just feels like it's set up for some. Uh, you know, bad injuries, honestly, I, I, people are just, whether mental or physical, I guess, just people are not going to handle it well. And, and yeah, so that's uh, another sort of last point there, but I'm, I'm curious just from a sort of professional level for, for you guys, um, what it's been like as a reporter covering these, I don't know if, I don't know if any of you've had Ava, I don't know if you've had like a, a chance to go or would go into the bubble fully as a, as a Wizards beat writer, if you'd want to, if, or what, what the access has been like before, during, and, before and during these bubbles, what it's what it's like for you uh, being a sports reporter during this time? Um, so specifically, as it relates to the bubble, I'm not planning to go to the bubble. Our national reporter Ben Golliver is there and is doing the whole 95 days. Um, the Wizards, I guess, are the Orlando Pride of the NBA. They are the only Eastern Conference team who were invited um, who aren't in the playoff picture. They're five and a half games back. There's they're without their three best players. There's no way <laughs> they're winning like any games and okay. again like that I you know has been in the back of my mind is why are you taking 35 people to Orlando to do this and um the answer is money but um I suspect but it's it's been a really weird time to be a sports reporter it's been a really weird time to be a black sports reporter just because it, sports has alternately kind of been something I wish I could escape to at this time and something I just like can't fully bring myself to care about lately mm. um it's also been really we've had been having really interesting discussion discussions at the paper on are we going to cover this season as if it's a normal nba season are we going to have florida's coronavirus numbers in every single story yes i'm sure Colleen's having the exact same discussions with her editors and fellow columnists of what what's our moral responsibility here to remind people that Yes, sports are back and they're a much needed distraction and an important part of the fabric of our society, but we can't lose sight that it's literally not all fun and games right now. So yeah. it's been a really interesting time and, and there's a lot going on and I have stopped being able to mem remember things like full stop, just dates, <laughs> <laughs> like important figures, when and things are blur together. Yeah, what oh, day yeah. of the week is it? It's, yeah, it's impossible. It's, it's a really, really weird weird time right now um no, I've, so, yeah hopefully we come out on the other side of it better i fully feel that i, I have that same sort of issue with the, i'm not black obviously but i've that same issue with the dissonance um <laughs> news from <laughs> helene shock yes uh, i oh, can finally no. reveal it episode 264 um but i uh i yeah I, I have a tough time sort of mentally engaging with sports a lot of times it just feels a little it feels really trivial at times um in the wider context of what's going on elsewhere in florida to use that example of just those leagues are happening there it's just not one of is nba one of the 10 most important things happening in florida right now like i would say probably no and so it it, it just takes some time and yeah and i'm i have i need to talk to my editors too or whoever i'm going to work for at the us open if it happens like what what is our caring about results like is someone i'm sure some stories will still rise to the top like if there is like another coco golf type situation with a 15 year old doing great i'm sure we'll care about that at the us open but if you know um i don't know kenan loses a third round match is that like a big story for us now like the, i think everything has to be recalibrated and the answers are just kind of kind of different um helene i'm curious for you what you what you thought what you've thought of sports and also i guess to go back to that backyard event with Sam Query, like how sort of clarifying that was for you about 
where sort of sports fit in in this sort of desolate, empty freeway LA that you're that you're living in now that to to go as tennis is a destination how does that feel in this moment it was you know the one thing I've been writing a lot of columns that there's an intersection of sports and what's going on in society I mean I did a column on uh, Tiana Bartoletta who's a three-time Olympic track and field gold medalist who told me that and she said this publicly but she feels compelled when she goes out for a run in her mostly white neighborhood to make sure she greets everybody preemptively. Hi, how are you? You know, has a smile on her face because she doesn't want to anybody to think that she's threatening them. Mm-hmm. And how is that a way to live when you're a three-time Olympic gold medalist and you feel like you have to do that? I yeah. uh, did a column on a woman named Haley Wickenheiser, who's a uh, who's an Olympic uh, multi-Olympic gold medalist, hockey gold medalist. She's a uh, in her final year of med school, and she's living in Toronto. She organized a drive for personal protective equipment. Um, so I did a column on her, I did a column on the Bauer Hockey Equipment Company, totally focusing their yeah. operations on making surgical grade um, face, face shields, shields for yeah. medical personnel. You know, there's intersections. I, I did a piece on um, uh, the, the coach, uh, the new coach of Loyola Marymount's basketball team. Uh, he was hired in March and immediately he has to start recruiting and can't talk to anybody. You know, how does that change the way you do your job? How does that change the way you approach the importance of games? I mean, there's so many um, stories along those lines. I did a column on a woman, uh, a critical care nurse, and how different can your life and your pastime be than being a critical care nurse and being somebody who throws uh, souvenirs into the stands at a hockey game? Um, but there's a lot of stories like that out there. I've kind of hit a wall, though. I have to admit, the last couple of weeks, I've kind of hit a wall on that. Um, and I think we're in this kind of uneasy state right now where all these sports are planning to come back. They want to come back, but we just don't know if they can. And that applies to the pro league, the, you know, league sports and also tennis and uh, college football. I mean, I was talking to one of my editors at the paper this morning. I mean, uh, nobody really knows whether college football is going to have a season this year. They've already talked about just doing playing within the conferences. Um, I have a hard time envisioning college football having anything resembling a normal season. Uh, yeah. The NFL, uh, they've already cut their preseason schedule. How can you have contact sports like that when you're telling everybody to social distance? I mean, as careful as you're being, there's going to be blood, there's going to be saliva, there's going to be, you know, contact that's unavoidable. It's, it's, you know, people say that at the beginning of this, people said, well, I don't want to read about politics. Sports was my, the place I escaped to. Well, I think one thing that we've all learned is that it's not an escape. Sports is society. So sports, sports is who we are or who we aspire to be sometimes. Yeah. And I think we've learned that during this, during this whole, uh, or yeah, no, and I, I think that for a lot of people in a lot of different communities in America, you know, sports are the only place where they see or sort of engage with, you know, people of color in a lot of ways. They're sort of only time they're aware of issues surrounding black people or when someone on their local NBA team speaks up about or WNBA team or something like that. I think it can really be a, um, a gateway into a lot of into understanding in, in a positive sense, different people in different sense. But also, yeah, it those things cannot be isolated and you can't make a bubble to use that timely term around these things. Um, one, other, one other sort of media question I have is, I'm curious, this has been a topic we've had within Tennis Media a bunch, 
because US Open said they're not going to have any media allowed on site at the US Open. And even if you were on site, you would still not be able to get in face to face with the players. You'd still be on, you know, Zooming from different parts of the stadium with each other. Um, and I'm curious what, if you guys have any sort of concerns about access for sports stars being restricted long term through this. If this sort of, if, you know, access is something that's sort of been fairly hard won in a lot of different sports for different reporters. And if this could be um, a setback. Uh, earnestly or, you know, as a sort of, uh, you know, facade for reasons to cut back access for, for athletes, uh, for media to athletes from this time, if you think this can create new challenges. Um, Linz, I don't know if you have if thoughts on this and what, if, if this is going to get tougher to, to be reporters during, and I guess even post Corona, whenever that, whenever that comes. Yeah, it's really interesting because so yeah, for the WNBA right now, it's been, you know, training camps underway. So we're doing all these quote-unquote media days, which media days usually when all the players are hanging out in the press comes for about a couple of hours, talks to individual players while they're getting their photos taken for the season. And one of the things I always love about media days, you just kind of get to go up to all the players and like have casual conversations, right? Like you can, um, you know, just start those, you know, start to get to know them, start to build those relationships. And now they're all being done over Zoom, which in one case I've gotten to kind of virtually I'm like hopping in and out of press conferences through Zoom for all 12 teams in the league, right? Like I'm trying to make it to everybody, you know, no. and that's something that obviously I would never have the access to do, right? Like, and I'm trying to pace myself because I know it's going to be a long, long year. So I'm just, you know, popping, you know, I'm, I'm trying to pick, you know, one or two media availabilities a day that I want to, you know, um, pop into. Um, and so for that reason, like you're getting more, but you're missing so much, you know, I'm not going to be able to go into the locker room and see the player who's standing all by themselves, but do I have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with and, you know, see how they're feeling after the game, you know, I'm not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to build those individual relationships. You're not going to be able to kind of see the body language. I mean, it's just going to be very different. And I am afraid that. Um, you know, I was talking to a WNBA person who was like, this is working so well, everyone's loving the Zoom stuff. And it's like, it's working fine for this, but this is not at all what we should be, you know, yeah. like, like, we're going to be missing something. And for the WNBA, reporters aren't allowed in the bubble at all. So there's no, there might, hmm. Holly Rowe might be down there for ESPN. I think she's trying to get down there. And so she'd be the only media person on site. All the broadcast stuff is being done remotely. Um, no beat reporters are allowed down there. And so, you know, I'm listening to all of these podcasts and all these in-depth things about the NBA bubble, right, from reporters who are down in there. And we just know so much less about the WNBA. And that's a, you know, we're missing out on a lot too because that's you know that's unfortunate too so I think I'm scared I'm always scared that more access is going to be taken away I think we should all be um uh hesitant about that um yeah. but um you know I think for right now I'm fine just kind of making the best of the situation but um it's not the same Ava you want to jump in there oh yeah I was just gonna say exactly what Lindsay was saying also there are so in the tier one status in the NBA bubble where you have kind of something approaching normal as, um, access and even that is you can watch the game sitting 10 feet back from the court but all the press conferences and everything are still virtual pretty much all practice availability um, even with that if you want to get that access the NBA allowed 10 reporters in from independent outlets and it cost baseline $50,000 per reporter um, wow. so you know you had to be able to afford that also to get in and certainly not every it's just a, a winnowing of, of coverage. Yeah. Just on it. yeah Go ahead. To add to that, the, um, 
NHL has been discouraging uh, media coverage, but I noticed that um, when they listed the number of personnel who could be in the bubble, um, each team is required to have a media person, a like website media person. And to me, that represents just a further encroaching on um, independent access. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have somebody in there who's going to be obviously a team employee and emphasize what the team wants to be emphasized and ask friendly questions and write friendly stories. And that uh, hurts all of us uh, in the end. I know that, you know, here on a, con on a conversation among all media people, we understand that when you try and tell that to fans outside or people outside, they don't yeah. care. They don't realize what they're going to lose. But I think we all do. There was a really sort of galling moment during the U.S. Open's press conference, um, which they held a, a month or so ago, where they snuck in a question. And it's like very crowded. I'm sure there was a long, there was, I know, a long queue people wanted to ask questions. And in the middle of it, they had some USTA staffer sort of get called on and ask some incredibly softball question about all the great work the USTA Foundation is doing lately, which is nobody cares about that press conference. And seeing that sort of way that access can change or think that you can, you know, stack the desk, deck against you it's, it's sort of in a media freedom sense, it's not the overblow it is in this time of a pandemic, it's sort of scary from a media sense um, to see how quickly that can change. And, and Lens, what you're saying about the access, I think is right. Like there is a sort of democratization of it in some levels. Like people don't have to have travel budgets to get on a Zoom call. And so maybe more people from more places can be at a French Open press conference than would be otherwise. If you know someone like the LA Times, it doesn't usually cover the French Open in person, but they could have somebody sort of there asking questions to Nadal after a match and if they get credentialed virtually or however that's going to work. Um, but at the same time, you do lose all the access and all the, the up close being in the, in the place where it happens, talking to the coaches, getting a sense of atmosphere, what's actually happening there. It'll be, it'll be removed. It'll be different. I think it'll just be hard to do and the sports writing most of us most enjoy doing, which is about conveying to people what they can't see on TV, which is obviously, um, if this is on all TV products, it's going to be a, a relatively uh, two-dimensional, pun intended, screen that you get of, of what's going on. Any, thank you guys for being here. Sorry this has gone longer than I expected it to, but you guys have had great things to say. I don't want to keep you much longer. Any, any sort of closing thoughts from any of you on, on what you're hoping for from tennis or from sports in a wider sense as, uh, as things march on, as, as things still are on track to happen. I mean, the U.S. Open is still more than a month away, so there's still plenty of time for them to cancel. I'll keep reminding them that. But um, if, they, uh, if they go on, what are you, what are you hoping for for sports? Uh, Ava, if you want to start. Um, I just, I really enjoyed listening to Helene talk about her, the columns that she's done. And I think um, with everyone watching and returning to sports, it would be really nice for athletes and tournaments and leagues and everything like that to use their platforms to um, give a little hope, inspire some change, encourage people to vote. Um, and I'm really looking forward to kind of all of that that comes from the return of sports, because I think it's a chance for people to uh, spread powerful messages. Yeah, no, that's true. This is all capping. I mentioned this, but there is obviously, among other things, to be a big election happening and ramping even further up during all this sports saturation time. So it's going to be a crowded time in American life and in American uh, bandwidth. Uh, Helene, how about you? you, what that, you? Yeah, you hope that everybody, like the best of human nature, prevails. You hope that the athletes who are in these situations behave properly and um, you know safely, and they conduct themselves safely. You hope nobody gets sick and dies. No. I mean, that's ultimately 
the end game here. You hope that this can be done safely, uh, whether it's on the field, on the ice, on a tennis court, wherever it is, um, you know, you hope that human nature prevails, that people who've become aware of racial issues during this time, keep that in mind. It isn't just something that flits through your mind now. Platform allows you to do and say and make things better for everybody. Um, you know, I'm not sure, uh, maybe I'm too cynical, too old and cynical, but I'm not sure the best of human nature will prevail, but I hope it all been through this together. Um, and certainly at first, every, there was this, you know, we're in this together, we, we can get through this, we can uh, band together and do what we're supposed to do and, uh, you know, stay home, each other safe. And, and everybody, I think, was looking for an immediate payoff and didn't get it. So now people are itchy, they're restless, they're thinking, I should be rewarded. I stayed home, I should be rewarded. Well, so that's, that's made it difficult. But, you know, again, the end game is doing this safely, highlighting what people have done to do it safely, what they've sacrificed, and maybe we come out of it better for it. I, I hope so. Yeah. On that sort of better part of human nature, I think tennis, particularly with this Zverev stuff we talked about before on the show with, with the team and everything, I guess Djokovic, you want to lump him in there too. All this is a little bit different of a case. I think tennis has more to prove in terms of being able to break out of its uh, very individualistic nature and to show that people can work for the, for the greater good. I think it's something that's it's a little more unproven in tennis. Uh, Lindsay, you have closing thoughts here on what you're big picture hoping for from, from tennis or yeah. from other sports? I wrote about this in Power Plays, my newsletter yesterday, just kind of about how um, uncomfortable all this is and how, you know, there are going to be moments where I really enjoy a goal, right, in the Challenge Cup and get excited about a person's play or I, I get lost in a game for a second or I have an opinion on the MVP race, but it's always going to be accompanied by this side of guilt and by this side of discomfort and this question of should this be happening? And I think my goal is to, instead of ignoring and trying to push away that discomfort to lean into it. Right. I'm not mm. going to keep, I'm not going to keep stop. I'm, I am going to watch the women's sports. Like I have a women's sports newsletter. I want to support these athletes that are out there. I want to cover it. But at the same time, like I need to lean into that discomfort and keep, keep exploring it. Right. I think that's the only way forward is if we keep putting all of this stuff into context and um, Brittany Griner, the Phoenix Mercury, I was zooming into a press conference with her and someone asked her about the, um, the league's uh, initiatives and just how she had been feeling with all um, since the George, George Floyd murder. And, you know, she said, thank you so much for asking that question because not enough people are asking that question. And mm -hmm. she said, you know, she went on to say how, you know, I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're playing basketball. I love basketball, but basketball doesn't mean anything. Um, if we can't go for a run, if we can't, you know, um, if we can't live our daily lives without fear. Um, and, you know, she challenged the reporters to keep leaning in to tough questions, even if they feel like it's going to be awkward, even if they feel it's going to be uncomfortable. You know, she said that, you know, she challenged us all to keep, to, to keep asking, right? And I think that, um, you know, even past the opening weekend um, shows of solidarity, right, to just keep the racial injustice and, you know, the pandemic and the, you know, inequalities in our world to let sports be a platform for elevating that conversation, not for distracting from it. And I think that's my goal. Yeah, that's a good goal. Caitlin, uh, do you have any closing thoughts here on, on what, uh, what you're hoping for from the, the sports world and maybe the wider world 
as we as we march on in these strange times. Yeah, I, I think what everyone else said was well put, and I agree with everything they said. I mean, I can't help but think about, um, I've seen the sen- sentiment a lot that sports are the reward for a functional society. Yeah, that's what Sean Doolittle said, yeah. Yeah, it feels a little bit like we want the reward without doing the work, at least here in the United States. So my hope is that uh, we don't forget that we still need to be a functional society. We still need to put in the work. Just because we have sports back does not mean that we have gotten through this at all. And I see, you know, people tweeting at me. They, they don't want to hear about this. They want sports to be entertainment and a distraction. And I personally am not going to stop talking about the fact that there's a pandemic. People are dying. You know, policies haven't been put into place to deal with this. So um, I think... It's nice that we have sports back. I mean, this is people's livelihoods. It's, um, you know, important for the athletes to come back as a reporter. Um, That's my job. So it's great that it's back. But I just, you know, I think it's important that we don't lose focus of everything else that's going on. And that's sort of my hope is that, like the others said, it can shine more of a light on it rather than distract from what's going on. Absolutely. Well, on that note, thank you guys for shining your lights all here. It's a very bright, glowing constellation of, of media stars we put together here. So <laughs> Ava, Helene, Lindsay, and Caitlin, thank you all very much for being here. Thanks for coming on and hopefully see you on some Zoom press conference somewhere. somewhere soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having me. So thank you once again to Helene, Ava, Lindsay, and Caitlin for being on the show. And please Support these tremendous women however you can. Buy Caitlin's book. Subscribe to Lindsay's newsletter. Follow the work of Ava and Helene as well. We'll have links to their links on in the description of the show. So thank you guys in advance for supporting them as well. And thank you once again to them for being here. And thank you also to our Patreon backers for their, their support of the show always. Since we last put up a show on this feed, Courtney actually did a uh, two-hour-long <laughs> maybe more than two hours long episode for our Patreon backers about her love of the video game series, The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2, which featured longtime friend of the show, Tony Carmody, also talking about the game. So if you're at all interested in video games and The Last of Us and or just hearing Courtney talk about something that she's passionate about, which I know many of our listeners just enjoy hearing Courtney talk at length about pretty much anything, then check that episode out on our Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash no challenges remaining is where to find us there. And we have some new backers to thank since our last show posted, including Emily Barbato, Colin Mary, Parker Elliott, Tanya, the Ensley family, and Audrey Wellens, as well as our Slam Champ backers. We thank every episode, including Audrey Wellens, who's a new Slam Champ backer. Thank you, Audrey. Joseph Har, Susanna W., Mary Carrillo, Betty, Chuang Nguyen, Jonathan Weinbaum, and Liz Kinnell. So thank you to that whole group, and thank you to our GOAT backer, J-O-D, for your support, as always. Again, that's patreon.com slash nochallengersmaining to help us out there. You can also follow NCR on Twitter, at NCR underscore tennis. And send us questions, comments, anything, thoughts, or suggestions for future episodes to our email, nochallengersmaining at gmail.com. We've another some cool programming lined up for you next week. We're gonna have an interview that I did with Glenn Greenwald, who wrote an interesting piece that we'll put out on our Twitter as posting this for uh, about his long work on a documentary project about Martina Navratilova 
and some of the hurdles that's run into in the process. Uh, it's navigating current cultural climates on various issues. So look out for that next week, and we'll have some other fun stuff as well, hopefully, in the near future for you, both on our main feed and on our Patreon. That's all for now, folks. See you later. Hope that you're staying safe in whatever kind of bubble it is that you're living in. Hope that it does not burst anytime soon, and that everyone floats along as well as they can in these crazy times. Bye, guys. Bye.